greeting strangers. The last four weeks I've been in Chicago and then down in Lakeland, Florida, over in Denver. I've got that order wrong, I think. And then uh, last Sabbath out in Fresno, California, where we had 284 people show up as a result of the letter that we sent out and the fact that we've been on television out there for quite some period of time. We were very prone to say back in the 1950s and 60s that we were out doing the work. When I was a boy, I heard a lot about the work. Matter of fact, my father kept talking about the work, sacrificing for the work, having your heart in the work, off doing the work. There are a lot of scriptures in the Bible to talk about the work. And I want to ask, well, what is this thing about the work, and is there any work that you are supposed to be doing? In Habakkuk 1 and verse 5, God says, Behold, ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder, wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. Now, in our naivete, in our energetic enthusiasm back in the 1950s and even before, wherever we could find a scripture in the Bible to use that word work, we would almost automatically apply it to what we were doing. When I was a boy, I used to earn five cents an hour helping in the work. And what I would do is I would watch just as the sheet came off of a hand-cranked mimeograph, and I had what were called slip sheets. Now, that's merely a kind of a thick blotter-like material, and by hand I would immediately put it in between these pieces of paper which were floating down, which were laden with ink. My dad had typed on his own typewriter a blue stencil, and he had given the headline a little extra artistic flair by holding it up to the window with a stylist. And then he would draw out the words plain truth or good news or the headline of the article. And my mom would crank it out on the mimeograph. I got to ink it every now and then. It was a lot of fun because it had a little brush and it had a little well in it. And you would take the cap off and pour this sticky black ink in it and then turn the cap back on. And the brush would kind of lock onto a little arm and you could run it back and forth on this drum which had holes in it. And the ink would then soak through into the mat, and the mat would soak the ink on through into the stencil, and the stencil would transfer the ink onto the paper. And if you didn't put a little blotter between each one, it would smear and be completely illegible. Well, five cents an hour was a lot of money. When I was about nine, ten, eleven years of age, I could go to a movie for eleven cents, and fifteen cents would buy me a hamburger down at Snappy Service uh, Quick Food Place in Eugene, Oregon. So it sounds like it was a very little bit of money, but actually, if I'd worked several hours a day, it was a lot of money to me, a nickel an hour. That was the work. My mom was the mail receiving department, the co-worker department, the business office, the outgoing mailing department, and a whole lot of other things. And my dad did the radio program and wrote all the articles. That was the work. For a while, my sister Dottie would help out. A little later on, Jim Gott came along when he married my sister Beverly, and he became the printing department. Well, little by little, that little fledgling beginning up in Eugene, Oregon, and eventually moved down to Pasadena, California, grew until it embodied a college in 1947. By the 1950s, when I was out of the Navy and there were 36 students in Ambassador College, my father came to me one day and said, Ted, do you know that we have crossed the $1 million per annum mark? I think that was about 1955 or so, maybe a little earlier than that. And the gross income for the work at that time had become about $1 million. 
And I well remember then the way the work began to grow because we were on the Mexican radio stations and taking some baptizing tours through the central sections of the United States and sending out young students from Ambassador College. Little by little, the Feast of Tabernacles grew from around 100 to about 600 or so when I was first out of the Navy to about 1,500 or so the first time we met up here in Big Sandy. And eventually it was just 4,000, 8,000, 15,000, and off we went. We had three festival sites. And finally, in our very largest uh, outreach programs with a magazine reaching millions and millions of homes, an $11 million annual payroll, $960-some-thousand-dollar just for utility bills in Ambassador College, operating three college campuses, vast printing plants, pre-press, photography and art departments, transportation department, all kinds of communication, our own travel agency, for pity's sake. We figured if it had to be done, we could do it better than anybody else. So instead of just farming out the printing, we just hired about 247 guys and six or eight big presses and did our own printing. And all of this was the work. That's what we called it. Is that what Habakkuk 1 and verse 5 means? I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though a man should declare it to you, or though it be told to you. Well, not really. That actually has more to do with Jesus Christ's first coming, and then eventually with the day of the Lord, as we shall see. In Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, if you prefer, chapter 3 and verse 2, O Eternal, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Eternal, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then if you read the context, he stood, verse 6, measured the earth and beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered and the perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting, a kind of a poetic foretaste of the day of the Lord. But if you'll turn to John 4 and verse 34, we will see many occasions in the New Testament where Jesus Christ talked about doing a work. John 4, 34. Well, that isn't exactly what I want. Let me look at John 5, 17 right quick, because I was jostling along in the car and they put down the wrong one. Yeah, John 5, 17. Jesus answered him and said, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. In John 17 and verse 4, Jesus said in his final prayer, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. I think you're all ahead of me. You know very well that Christ came to perform a certain work. It was his life's work, a work of abstinence, a work of sacrifice that I've characterized as the lonely sacrifice of Christ because he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. I often wonder when I see Sunday morning televangelists burbling and giggling like a little baby with pablum and a full belly who had just been tickled under his ribs, uh, where they get all this idea of happy, 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 everything is bubbly and effervescent and oh, just praise the Lord, and everything's a big grin and a smile like a two-year-old playing with a rattle. We were discussing that at lunch the other, uh, other day, and Ron Dart said, well, they get it from one word, the word is joy. Well, that's correct. But you know, the Bible talks about being joyous in tribulation and also tells us that we are to sorrow with those who sorrow, to weep with those who weep, and mourn with those who mourn, and that there is going to be a time, Jesus said, that we will have great tribulation. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you, he said. 
And the work that Christ did was oftentimes a work without any material reward or recognition whatsoever. It was a work of loneliness, a work of going without sleep, of abstinence, of sacrifice, of rejection, his own brothers and sisters, people in his own near family rejected him and didn't understand him. He never once sat down and had a meal with a converted man, because Christ never knew a converted man as he walked this earth as a human being. They were not converted with God's Holy Spirit until on the day of Pentecost, after Christ had ascended to heaven. Jesus Christ characterized himself as a man who was not unlike a fox, or the fox of the desert, not the fox that had the cave, but a person who would have to wander about and having no certain place where he could lay his head. Now, he had a house. I proved that all right, and the Bible is very clear on that, that the family owned a home and possibly Christ helped build it with his own hands. But he wasn't very often in it. Most of the time he was traveling. And oftentimes he was sleeping out of doors, and sometimes he was found out of his robes and his blankets early in the morning, maybe 3, 30, 4, 5 o'clock. The disciples would look, and he would be gone up on the top of a mountain praying. Jesus then said, I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Now he had called his disciples, and he commissioned them, and he gave them a work to perform. Matthew 28, 18-20, we read it many, many times, Go you into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature, summarized. And in Luke 24, 46 and 47, not only a message that Jesus brought, but also that they are to preach Christ, and preach about Christ as well as the message that he brought. Now, if you'll turn to a summary of that in Acts, the first chapter, sort of the last touch-up about the Great Commission prior to the day of Pentecost. The disciples are actually beholding with their own startled eyes the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, of course, after his many appearances, his ascension. And they ask him, Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? In verse 6 of Acts 1. And he said, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power. After that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, which was a Roman province around Jerusalem, and in Samaria, which was like a northern central state inhabited by dark-skinned, swarthy people who came there after the Babylonian captivity, actually had been transplanted there by the Babylonians, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now, I want you to think for a moment of how those words must have affected Bartholomew and Andrew and Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and all of the other disciples, Simon, all the rest of them. Peter, who we know, the Bible says very clearly in the book of Matthew, his wife's mother lay ill, and Jesus came into the house and healed her. Peter, no doubt, had children. It's obvious he had a wife, but they had a home that the family was still living together, because Peter's mother and her mother were in the same home when Jesus stopped there with the disciples on a trip where he'd been healing a lot of people and found her lying there ill. He's telling these people they're going to travel, that they're going to leave the place of their abode. He is not spelling out for them the building of an organization which then takes into account through its personnel department 
all of the needs and desires of a family who puts down roots in a local environment involving school and friends, involving real estate and possessions, involving the comforts and familiarity of some local community. But he is saying, you're going to be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, right here, the capital city, but they weren't from Jerusalem. They were from Galilee. Galilee was their home. The towns up around the Sea of Galilee, the Decapolis, and the small towns of that province were where these people were basically from. Both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, which was a large area, like a large state to them, and in Samaria, an area they always went around, they invariably tried to avoid Samaria. That's why Jesus went to the feast secretly and went through Samaria on one occasion because it was off the main travel routes. The Jews avoided it studiously. Strange words then. You're going to be in the capital city here, not in your own home, and in Judea, out in the entire province, and in Samaria, where you'll find nothing but swarthy, dark-skinned Gentiles, a minority race amidst Israel, and to Timbuktu, and to perhaps uh, the counties of Ireland, and England, and northwestern Europe, and to Spain. Why did Paul write that he might want to go by Spain, except there were Christians there? So you have to look at this in the light of biblical history, from what little we can know internally in the Bible. And the book of Acts is the chronicle of Luke, a chronologer, and of course leaves us with the Apostle Paul in the Roman imprisonment at about 59 or so A.D. Now it's been stated before that as a result of a great persecution that came upon the church, they were forcibly scattered and sent out of the Jerusalem area, and otherwise they may have just stayed right there. But it's interesting that by the tenth chapter, where you see Peter at the house of Cornelius, and prior to that in the ninth chapter, the conversion of the apostle Paul, whose name was previously Saul, that from that time the scene shifts, and the pen of Luke only takes us through the journeys of Paul. Peter is never again mentioned except briefly in the fifteenth chapter of the Jerusalem conference, and after that time to the end of the close of the book of Acts is never again mentioned in the book of Acts. Nor is Andrew his brother, nor Thaddeus, nor Bartholomew, nor any of the other apostles. Indeed, all of the original twelve apostles are absent from biblical history from the close of the Jerusalem conference. And you only see Peter writing, and there's a lot of, of course, discussion about whether or not he really was over in Babylon, meaning in an area near Iraq, or whether he was in Rome. Uh, the in implication is strong that at the time Paul wrote to the Roman church, he was not and had not yet been. Maybe he was later, but that's for the historians to decide. Where did these men go? There is plenty of evidence that there were Christians, people who believed in the basic tenets of the Christian faith in faraway England centuries before the Council of Whitby in 664. There is evidence that throughout northwestern Europe and Scandinavia, in fact as far as Iceland and perhaps in Vineland on the shores of this continent, there were those who had heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and knew about some of the basic tenets of what we call Christianity generically. And that knowledge, though it had been lost largely and deteriorated over the 
period of centuries and centuries, had to have been carried there somehow. I think it's commonly assumed that the Ethiopian eunuch, who is puzzling over a priceless scroll that he purchased to take back to Candace, a queen of Ethiopia, and wonders what it means and is approached by Philip, who is sent miraculously to his chariot, is given to understand that the prophecies of the Old Testament are talking about Jesus Christ of Nazareth and asks what hinders me to be baptized and was baptized and then allowed to go on his way. And Philip did not say, well now what we will do is use you to start a church down there, nor did he say, let's keep in touch, nor did he say, I'll put you on the mailing list, nor did he say, I'll go along with you, but history tends to indicate that the Coptic Christian Church is perhaps an outgrowth of what happened so long ago when the Ethiopian eunuch learned about Jesus Christ and went on his way back to Ethiopia in the first century. Now we all know what it says in the Great Commission. Those who believe and are baptized shall be saved, and those who believe not shall be condemned. I think one of the greatest examples of how that commission works is found in the second chapter of the book of Acts and the ensuing chapter. Immediately in the end of the second chapter, you see that 3,000 people were baptized. Now, it was such a delightful occasion. There were such great and phenomenal miracles, these people could not tear themselves away. They were there anyway as Jews for a pilgrimage during this annual Holy Day season, Pentecost. So they decided to stay there to see what else was going to happen. They wanted to learn. They wanted to find out more. Certainly after having seen something so amazing as 12 men standing there with flickering flames burning and shooting up into the sky from their heads, yet not singeing the hair of their head, and hearing all of these powerful sermons about Jesus Christ and the things he'd said and done, how the blind and the deaf had been healed, how a man with a withered hand had suddenly had a hand as whole as yours or mine, all the wonderful things he had done, seeing him killed, seeing the beating, seeing him up on the stake, seeing him die, experiencing the great earthquake, talking about families who'd seen their grandfather walk in the door who'd been dead for 16 days. Why, there were a lot of things to talk about. And so they sold possessions, and they had to go to publicans and effect documents and even put up for sale possessions back in Bithynia, Cappadocia, up in Dacia, perhaps over in Rome, over in the island of Cuprim or Cyprus. And so they did so. And they stayed there and began to distribute their possessions, verse 45, to all men as every man had need, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from place to place. Doesn't mean that they were traveling from place to place, but in town after town, village after village, house after house, wherever they were, they were eating their meals or their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. We find the second part of the Great Commission in Christ's statements to Peter in the very last chapter of the book of John, when he asked Peter several times, and I won't turn to that, you're familiar with it, if you love me, feed my sheep. So we know there are two parts to the Great Commission. Now, if you understand a little bit about British history, you know that a lay member, a wealthy man, could have been given a commission by the queen 
which was a legal document, and the wax would contain her own imprimatur of her ring as a seal, and she would say that he is now charged to proceed forthwith to an island in the West Indies to perhaps start a colony. He could commission the building of a ship, could hire himself a captain and a crew, and he became a commissioned officer and wore the insignia of that office, and that was the reason he was called a commissioned officer. You're familiar with non-cons, a non-commissioned officer in the Navy, who is called a little officer, a petty officer. He is neither called sir, nor is he saluted. He doesn't wear any gold braid, but just red stripes. He is a lesser, smaller, or petty officer. But a commissioned officer originally had a specific commission, and that commission was detailed to do or to perform a particular act. When Christ commissioned the church, he commissioned those disciples to do or to perform a certain act or a charge, a certain series of deeds. And primarily it had to do with preaching the gospel, and secondarily it had to do with taking care of those who, incidentally and from time to time, were converted and became members of God's true church. And it became called the work. Notice Acts, the fifth chapter in verse 38, when they were going to further bring a great deal of punishment upon Peter and some of the apostles. Gamaliel counseled them and said, Refrain from these men, and let them alone, for if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught, but if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply you be found to fight even against God. And they agreed to him, but they wanted to go as far as they possibly could, so instead of putting them to death, they simply beat them severely. When they had beaten them, commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, they let them go. And then notice what happened. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer, to suffer rather shame for his name. An example that boggles the mind. They're probably still bleeding. They probably got some clothing stuck to their backs because of the wheels that have been raised, and instead of breathing a lot of slaughterings, how to get even, perhaps even standing there and pontificating, the thou whitened wall, God will smite you, or whatever they thought they might want to say, they walk out of the presence of those who would have inflicted the beating upon them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now Christ had said, that you will be given power. What kind of power? That didn't imply money, but money is power. If we had about six or eight or ten million dollars, that would be a lot of power, a lot of authority to purchase a lot of radio, a lot of television, and have a tremendous impact upon this nation. That would really represent power. But what kind of power is it to control the human mind, human emotions, human passions and feelings like anger, outrage, and revenge. Here was Peter, who was a person of bombast, a person of short temper, a person that had certain racist tendencies, who didn't like, didn't care very much for Gentile and dark-skinned people, and had to be rebuked later on by the Apostle Paul at the Feast of Tabernacles for withdrawing himself from some Gentile people and instead going over and fellowshipping with some of the Jews. Yet on this occasion, 
he was able to rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer shame, shame uh, for the name of Jesus Christ. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Gamaliel had called it a work, a work of God. In Acts the 13th chapter and the second verse, if you'll turn to that, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Now, you all know that Paul spent his lifetime traveling till he was arrested. The only time Paul remained in any one place for any period of time, there was one occasion for two years in Ephesus, but he did so because God said, I have much people there. There was a large number of people who were converted. Paul stayed there to really ground and to establish that church, to ordain local ministers in it, and to care for it before he went on his way. But usually he was traveling, and oftentimes he traveled light. He wrote and said, bring the parchment and the cloaks and so on that I left when he was in prison and wanted an extra coat because winter was coming on. A little later on, in this same chapter, in the 41st verse, we see that a problem came, but this is actually a quotation out of Habakkuk that we read earlier and is a part of the testimony of Paul speaking before the entire audience. Behold, you despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And he was really talking about the resurrection of Christ and the forgiveness, forgiveness of sins. And again referring to it as the work that God did through Jesus Christ and as a part of his sacrifice. Notice Acts 15 and verse 38. And here's where the problem arose. And it says... Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. Now that could never have happened in the parent organization whenever I was a part of it, so long as I was a part of it. There was no way that a disagreement at the very top echelon could have resulted in a separation as a result of contention, and yet two groups of people would go off in different directions to opposite points of the compass and do the work. No, instead, the one group of people who would feel outraged would move heaven and earth to get back at and in some way punish, penalize, and perhaps excommunicate the group who had disagreed with them. There must be room in the true church of God for this exact type of thing to occur. That's why I've always found it strange when people decide to separate themselves from this work, the work of television, hopefully later on at some time radio, but right now the printing press, all of our books and booklets and the monthly publications and so on, the personal appearance campaigns, and that's why I have been away from this pulpit for about five solid weeks in a row and not here as a local pastor preaching every Sabbath out of this pulpit. But when people decide that they want to depart from this work, this organization, they take the additional step and depart from the church. And that to me has never made sense. They are not doing a work. I don't know of any one of them who has been blessed by that. I remember one man that rented a hall 
and put the ads in a paper and confidently waited there and not one person showed up. I know a case where a person was on the radio and I believe told me he had been on the radio for quite a period of time and had not yet had one single telephone call. And I cautioned him at that time that there may come a time when he wants to decide whether or not he wants to spend that money as to whether it really is producing anything, as to whether it's a waste of money or not. But it's very sad when I hear as the years go by of those who have done precisely that, who have left the work, who then decide, first of all, that one of the holy days is perhaps being kept on the wrong date. And then later on there will be a question involving the Sabbath. There may be a question involving how long Christ was in the tomb and when Christ really was resurrected. That's been a very current one. And suddenly you find people who don't just disagree, as Barnabas did with Paul, and go their way and remain faithful to the Word of God, the doctrines of God, and do a part of the work, but instead begin to reject the very fundamental doctrines that brought them into the true Church of God in the first place. That is the part that is difficult to understand. If someone were to separate himself from this work, but remain absolutely convicted and convinced of the truth of God, and to get on the radio or television, and I found that God was blessing it, you know what I'd say? I'd say, well then, God is doing a work through that man. And that's part of God's work. There'd be nothing else I could say because you shall know them by their fruits. Now, if I were to say, what is your work? What work have you produced? What is there that we can point to as the result of your life in the church of God? Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and look at the analogy. This is not an accidental analogy, and not mine or somebody else's, but one that Almighty God inspired Paul to use. When he said, the body is one, but has many members, and all the members of that body, being many, are one body, so is Christ. For by one spirit are you baptized into one body. And he said that the body is not one member, but many. And then he talked about all the parts of a human body. Verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 12, with the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, just a huge, big, globular eye sitting there on a piece of granite, staring out, doing nothing, disconnected, just a giant eye weighing 40 pounds, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, just a giant ear sitting out there somewhere, where were the smelling? But now has God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it has pleased him? And that, of course, some people do not agree with because it says that God has set the members, every one of them, in the body. They don't set themselves or choose themselves or decide from themselves where they might fit into the body of Jesus Christ as a spiritual organism, but God has set them. But now there are many members, yet one body. My body does not exist merely to eat. I know there are some people you see where you think maybe they don't understand that. I've seen that in circuses. I've seen that in public places. I saw that down when I took my son to Sea World the other day. I was dumbfounded at how many people were waddling along that were just almost pitifully overweight. Now, if all my feet did was carry me from my couch to the refrigerator, 
and all my hand did was to open the refrigerator door so my eye could see the ice cream and all the stuff in there that I wanted, and my tongue could enjoy it as my hand forked it into my face. And I just sat there, and I didn't accomplish any work, but just fed myself, enjoyed being the body, feeding the body, caring for the body, sating, satiating the body with all those sensations that feel so marvelous, and enjoying the experience of being alive, looking with the eyes, smelling with the nose, feeling with the hand, enjoying the sense of taste, of touch playing music all day long, just sating the senses and enjoying the experience of living, what would I accomplish? Well, I'd eat my way through several herds of cattle, several hundred acres of carrots and rutabagas and all kinds of other stuff that some poor farmer had to plant for me. I'd use up all that energy. I'd use up all that sweat of somebody else. A lot of farmers and gardeners and other people would be sweating out there to keep me alive. But what would I be producing? Years ago, I saw that there was a tribe in Africa that delighted in a real special delicacy. It was a giant female termite. Now, that female termite was about that big around and about that long. And they dug down in these gigantic mounds, and they found that female termite. And all these other huge big termites did was stroke her, and in a constant stream, carrying little armies of them, food to her. And she just lay there and went <coughs> squirting out eggs, eggs coming out the end. She was just a huge egg factory. You ever seen something like that in nature? I think that's the way one of these stupid uh, queen fire ants is. They dig down about four feet and just sit there and, and eggs coming out by the thousands every day. Well, all the workers just stroked the queen. And they would use their little antennae, you know, to make the queen feel nice. And when these Africans could dig up one of those things, I couldn't believe my eyes, but they ate it. They thought it was a delicacy. Now, that reminds me of people that have the concept of a church as a wonderful Christian home, or people that have the concept of a church as a thing to keep kids off the street, or to have scrap and paper drives, or to have a, a good, solid, uh, positive effect in a local community, or to have a youth program, or to have mother-daughter and father-son clubs, and, and to have a family life center, a bowling alley, and a swimming pool. Now, all of those things are wonderful, and I actually agree that a local church should do most or all of those things and perhaps other things beside, if that is not the purpose of the local church, but merely the sort of a side effect, the natural consequence of a group of people who happen to live within reach of each other in modern automobiles who can come together to meet once a week and therefore their families get together and they need to have certain activities that are understood. It's only when those things become the end instead of a means to an end, when those things become an end in themselves or the goal and the very purpose for being of the church that they begin to resemble the big female parasite kind of a growth that I was talking about or the big female termite and they're not accomplishing anything one way or the other. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul is citing his apostolic 
credentials. And notice what some of them were. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? Well, now there was some tangible evidence of Paul's life. If you were a carpenter and you could drive by some beautiful homes over here in the Highlands or down in Cumberland and you could say, I built that house, that would be obvious testimony to your prowess and you could say, I built that. Christ was a carpenter. There's nothing that feels better because God's own nature, I think, has been given to us in part in that sense than to create something. An artist can really enjoy the fact that when he creates a beautiful landscape, some gorgeous scenery, a beautiful portrait, some little cuddly kittens perhaps or something, and gives it to a friend of his, that he has created something. And long after he's dead, that piece of canvas will be there with that beautiful picture for people to enjoy. He's created something positive. A carpenter, a farmer, a gardener out growing fruit, growing big trees, pruning orchards that will be there long after he is gone and when his grandchildren are there to pick and enjoy the fruit, is someone who is producing and is leaving something behind him that is tangible and of measurable value. Any housewife knows how good she feels after she has completed spring house cleaning. Those fine spring days were windy now today, but this is one, one such day when you might want to go out if it weren't the Sabbath and open up every door and window of the house and to get in there and clean out every closet and just go through it if you had a basement from basement to attic. And it feels so wonderful when every last bit of dust is out of every carpet and every bit of dirt to sweat from every little corner and the furniture and everything has been polished and the home just looks spick and span. You have a wonderful sense of accomplishment. Your spirits are lifted. You feel marvelous after you have done something, produced something, accomplished something, and you can point to it and say, I did that. When Jesus Christ said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he embodied a commission. He gave them a commission that was going to result in tremendous hazards. It was a commission that automatically carried with it the absence of many creature comforts. In many ways, because of the modern technology in which we live today, it is an amazing combination of both that we oftentimes are able to enjoy. I can stand here and say to you that a few weeks ago I was in Chicago, and then down in Lakeland, Florida, over in Denver, out in just last week, Fresno, California, but I can get out to Fresno, California in about three hours. I can come back here in about two hours and 45 minutes. And that's just dumbfounding when you stop to think of the fact that only a couple of generations ago, if I said I'd been in Fresno, I probably have not seen you for at least a year or two. And it would have taken me all of three or four months to get out there on horse or in a wagon. And perhaps I would have had to start it out very early spring and only gone in the summer because I couldn't have gotten across the mountains in the winter. People have tried it and died as the Donner Party that resorted to cannibalism trying to cross the mountains into California. So in many ways, we can sort of have a little bit of both. I oftentimes am asked by people, well, is your wife with you this time? And I say, well, this time my grandson won out. 
He goes with me about half the time or two-thirds of the time, but not necessarily all of the time. Whenever I am at a place like I was recently in Fresno, they say, well, are you coming back here next week? We had 284 people, and I had about 100 people that I had never met before in person. They raised their hands when I asked them, and several of them came up there not knowing, well, how often do you get back to Fresno? I said, well, it may be a year, maybe two. Oh, well, we were hoping you could come back next week. Well, you know, I was too. That would have been nice, because those people were very eager. They were very hungry. And I stopped to think of the many hundreds of hours that I've sat and just opened up the Bible like Acts 1-1 and just start wading through it, or all the way through the Gospels or the Epistles of Paul or from Genesis 1-1, or just expounding, explaining the Bible and how thirsty and hungry these people are to learn and to want to grow in the truth of God, to come to know more about God's way of life. And yet, there is no one there to teach them. I have to go on my way, and Mr. Ted Phillips will get down there because he lives up I think about 150 or whatever it is, I don't know how many miles up north of there, maybe three or four hour drive, and he gets down there maybe once every month or so, and another minister or two might be able to get over there every now and then, but they have other smaller flocks to take care of. So we don't have the leadership that we need to care for some of the flock like we wish we could. Well, the human body is no more made to sit or to lie and to grow fat and to simply eat and to serve itself than the church. local or regional or international is made to do the same thing. Your bodies are made to sit, to stand, to walk, to leap, to jump, to run, push, pull, shove, haul, tug, carry. They're made to pound and saw. They're made to bend over, stoop and lift. They're made to exert energy and to produce work. Now, oftentimes it's hard to convince a child of that because the first X number of years of our life, we don't accomplish any work. The only work we accomplish is play. We, I remember when I was a kid, I had a little hammer, and I would hammer things, but I would just play it. And yet I was learning the tools that you can produce or you can give to a child, can help a child learn the idea of work, because some of them feign work and can become a little bit of work, which is good. But most of the time, it takes us a long time until we get around to explaining to a child what it took for Daddy to produce that quarter that I'm now going to give you and tell you to spend very, very wisely. Turn to 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, if you will, where it talks about our personal work. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. The Apostle Paul said that they were still carnal, but he talked about them as if it was like a plant that had grown out of the ground. He said, I have planted, verse 6, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that plants anything, neither he that waters, but God that gives the increase. Now he that plants and he that waters are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Was Paul jumping the track there and not talking suddenly spiritually? about spiritual reward, but only talking about the fact that you earn a good day's pay for a hard day's work? No, not really. He's also strongly implying that there is a degree of spiritual reward beyond that foundation, which is God's free gift. Now, where a lot of people get confused and attack the Church of God, both the worldwide church and us and perhaps others who believe similarly, of believing in a doctrine of salvation by works, 
is because they don't understand the obvious distinction between salvation, which is God's free loving gift in and through Jesus Christ when you repent of sins and accept Christ as your Savior, and then whether you produce fruit. And if you look at the parable of the pounds and the parable of the talent and the parables of Jesus of the little vine that was dug and fertilized and that produced fruit or the fig tree that he cursed because it produced no fruit, you will understand the distinction between the foundation, which is Christ, and the superstructure that is built upon that foundation, which is something with God's help that you must build. Now, I don't know how to build a house. I have a crazy, dumb idea, but it's very rudimentary from what I've gotten out of books or just through observation. I think I might know how to level some ground and how to put some boards down there and pour some concrete in it and put some rebar in it first. But when it came to putting all the rough plumbing in and making sure it was just in the part of the house where it ought to be and doing all those things prior to even pouring the slab, I might have a problem. I think I would know how to use a large carpenter's level and get the slab level. But then I'd start to have a problem. But then I guess they figured out, haven't they, with a little 22 shell, how to drive nails into slabs. And they go along now with a gun that actually shoots gun bullets, but a nail is being driven by an explosion into the slab. So I guess I could go buy those tools. But I might build a house. You'd go by and say, that looks like the Tam O'Shatter Tam Shack or whatever. It, it just goes every which way. It's, it's got a roof that goes like this. One wall is leaning like this. It might be the most ridiculous-looking house that you've ever seen because I'm not a carpenter. Now, some of you probably are a carpenter. Matter of fact, I know the one good carpenter sitting right here who is a good carpenter that would know how to build a house. But Jesus Christ of Nazareth says that you are building a superstructure that is your own personal life atop a foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. The foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets, and Christ is the chief cornerstone. And all of us together are a part of the superstructure. So he says, now verse 9, we are laborers together with God. That is why I continually address all of our people on the list as fellow laborers. You are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. That's like his flock, flock of sheep, flock of cattle his husbandry, his farm, including all the things that he plants and grows and all the sheep and the cattle that he raises. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, just like he were a contractor and a master builder, I have laid the foundation. So Paul said his preaching in Corinth, his preaching wherever he went, was laying the foundation. That's what I did in Fresno last Sabbath. That's what I did up in Chicago. It's what I did down in Lakeland. I didn't go there with a sermon designed to satisfy the church. I didn't go there with a very technical doctrinal church uh, sermon, church-oriented sermon, to feed the flock. I was not there as the pastor or the shepherd of an existing flock, but I was there as an evangelist to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, both as a witness and a warning. Paul said that he was like a wise master builder, that he had laid the foundation. Another builds thereupon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. 
For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You cannot build on any other foundation when you're dealing with the church of God and the work of God. Now, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, six different materials, six different values, six different flashpoints or melting points, six different occurrences when heat is applied. Gold, the most precious of all, the softest, the most malleable, and easily worked with a hammer. Silver, precious, but nowhere near so much as gold. Malleable and easy to be worked, but still much harder than gold. Precious stones, sometimes so hard that you can cut glass with them, including diamonds. And sometimes very, very precious. Wood, well, wood. That old farmhouse over in England was over 400 years old, twice as old as the United States has been a nation. And actually some of the beams were crooked because they had once been the ribs of a great sailing ship of the British fleet. And I have seen pubs that have incorporated great beams that have been around for literally five, six, seven hundred years. Wood, it seems, virtually never deteriorates. Those fibers lined the way they are that grew once out of the soil, and wood can be very precious. What about ebony? What about book-matched rosewood? What about imported teak? What about some of the fabulous mahoganies and the various fruit woods that are so beautiful, such as cherry and the orange wood that is very sinuous and can be used in a bow to make a bow and arrow, like lemon wood, a favorite for bow uh, making. Very beautiful wood. Hay. Well, now you're down to just dried grass that cattle can eat, and stubble, well, now that's just like chaff. They're just the result of people going out and reaping a harvest or that comes at, underneath the shock of hay when you put it on the wagon and cart it off to the barn. Every man's work shall be made manifest. Now, I want to tell you today, if you get nothing else out of this sermon, that that statement right there does not come from Garner Ted Armstrong, and that that statement right there is true. Right now, it is not manifest. It is not evident. I can't see it, you can't see it, you can't point to it, and I can't point to it either. I can't tell you to point to the work that is being done or accomplished in such a way that it would be very clear that everybody could see it. But it says, every man's work shall be made evident, obvious, manifest, for the day shall declare it. That is a time of great trouble, trial, tribulation, the day of the Lord eventually, the day of Christ's judgment and of his second coming, because it shall be revealed by fire. Now, that's merely a symbol of personal trial and tribulation, as much as it is also a symbol of the great tribulation, and eventually, I suppose, a symbol of the fact that Second Peter, the second chapter, talks about the earth shall be on fire and melt with fervent heat. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So what type of work is he talking about here? He's talking about a work, obviously, of spiritual proportions. And he is likening it under six different building materials, one of which is extremely cheap and not durable at all, that you might call thatch, or like 
stubble, which would be maybe something you could use in a kind of a prefab, prefab siding or maybe a thatched roof. And then hay or straw, same comment. And he said, if a man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by or through fire. So it says, even though you may produce stubble, as long as you have a foundation, and at least you've built something on it, even if the fire, which is the fiery trial that shall try us, personally, individually, collectively as a church, the personal trials that can make us turn away or go the other way, can dishearten us, can make us faithless, can make us give up on God, give up on prayer, give up on his word, drift back into the world, take up with old habits, go back to cigarettes or whatever that we left years ago. I've seen many people do it. Many people that year after year after year were up here at Big Sandy, the Feast of Tabernacles, just sitting there with a the Christmas tree with all the bulbs and the orbs. They've heard me describe exactly what those things are. They're sitting there with a the Christmas tree in their home at Christmas time, just like any other stupid pagan that ever walked the earth. But these words are going to judge us. I'm not going to judge you. Christ is going to judge me. But Christ is also going to judge you. And we cannot escape that judgment. It says here that every man's work is going to be made manifest. And it will. Your work and mine will be made manifest. If a man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Don't you know that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwell in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. The church is called the temple of God, and we individually are called God's temple. Now, since you are like a wise master builder, and you are building not just a house, but the very temple of God, with what care and what planning do you build it? I gave a sermon some time ago where I opined that if every one of us had a target, a near relative, a neighbor, a friend. I think of Mrs. Runcorn, who, when my mother was deathly ill and had been given up to die by the doctors, said, Well, Loma, do you believe in prayer? Do you believe that God can heal? And my mother said, Well, certainly, because she was raised a Quaker. And my father said, Well, certainly, because he was raised a Methodist. Well, would it be all right with you, then, if I invited some friends of mine in to pray for you? And they came in. And because my mother was healed miraculously, she began to ask this lady some more questions. And she was the lady who said, well, I won't answer your question about Saturday and Sunday, but just read this. And she turned to Genesis 2. Now read this. And she turned to Exodus 16, 18, and 20. Now read this, Exodus 31. Now read this and turn to Isaiah 56. Now read this and turn to Mark 2:27. And my mother said, well, according to this, it looks like the seventh-day Sabbath is the day we are to keep. What was the fruit of Mrs. Runcorn's life? I'm a part of it. The entire work of God is a part of it because my mom was converted as a result of that lady's conversation. She didn't hide her light. 
She didn't say, oh, well, I better not mention God or prayer, and certainly not the Sabbath. Yeah, these are Sunday-keeping people. Mrs. Runcorn wasn't that timid. She let her light shine. Loma, do you believe God can heal you? Here was my mom, three years before I was born, about to die. Thank God for Mrs. Runcorn. I'm here as a result of her putting into my mom's mind the unabashed desire to request a neighbor lady and her friends and their minister come over and lay hands on her and anoint her with oil and pray for her to be healed. So I opined some time back that if you had a target, and that target were a near relative or a neighbor or a friend or someone with whom you come in contact, and you, the temple of God, in whom resides the Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit of God is power. It is magnetic. It pulls people towards you. It does not repel people away from you. And here you are, like a dynamo, with all this stored knowledge, with all this stored energy inside of you. And you keep it inside of you, and you don't let any of it out. How is God going to address you? Will you be given rewards and accolades? Will he say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or will you be the one in the parable of the talents of the pounds who buried that one little bit of God's Holy Spirit that he gave you and sort of kept it in the mattress and were afraid to share it with someone else? So I said, how rapidly will the church grow in one year's time if within one year, 365 days, 52 Sabbaths, seven annual holy days, every member of the church were responsible at least once in the course of that year for bringing one other human being into God's true church. Well, we would double in one year, wouldn't we, if we all did it. I don't know whether God is using me to bring 1,000 a year. I don't even know if, that's, if it's that many. But certainly, God is using my voice in spite of my human physical failings and using my travels and my appearances in pulpits in other cities to somehow draw and to gather, and that's what my name means, to garner people to the truth of God into the many hundreds, if not the few thousands, over a course of some years. And that gives me a tremendous sense of joy and accomplishment. When I go to a faraway city and people come up to me, just huge smiles, sometimes grasp my hand and not even be able to talk and just start to cry. When a grown man will come up and hug me and say, you don't know what you've meant to my life. You've never met me before, but you were used to change my life. That feels so good. That feels better than any ice cream sundae or New York cut steak or anything, a great golf shot, a, a strike in a bowling alley. It feels better than anything you can imagine to have a human being say, you made a difference in my life. I've had people come up and say, I was suicidal. If I hadn't heard your voice when I did, I wouldn't be here. I would have taken my own life. Now, I do that almost naturally because I feel I must, because it's what I'm called to do. What is the work? I'll tell you, I take great issue with some things that were said 
and not to belabor that, but by no means is this my work, by no means is it a work to which God has called me that you are to get behind and support. It is our work, the work of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is equally co-dwelling in all of us, and he expects you to produce fruit and to be active and to be engaged in your part of that work. A lot of you could be a lot more influential than you are, but you hide your light. A lot of you live and move and move about in society freely with many people with whom you come in contact, never having the faintest idea you keep the Sabbath, never having the faintest idea you are a Christian, never having the faintest idea you believe in the Feast of Tabernacles. Why, if they could suddenly see you on the Passover kneeling before a brother and washing his feet, they'd think, poor old so-and-so has flipped his lid, he's gone crazy. What in the world is he doing? I didn't have the faintest idea he did stupid things like that. Because you're hiding your light. Because you may be just a little bit ashamed. Now, Jesus Christ of Nazareth said, any man that is ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of him at my coming. You cannot be ashamed of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Why would you be ashamed of salvation? My father put it this way, if your heart is not in the work, you won't be in the kingdom of God. Now, don't misunderstand that, because he said, if you're only interested in getting salvation for yourself and not in giving it to other people, then you'll never be in God's kingdom, because those who are of the code or the mode of get are not of God's code or God's mode, which is give. And that is true. That's a, that's a very simple way of putting it. But you know, when you have God's Holy Spirit, what do you have? When you have God's knowledge, what do you have? When you have the Word of God, what do you have? Well, here's what you have. You have the knowledge about how to avoid wrong foods, how to stay in good health, how to eat correctly. You have the knowledge about how to wisely choose a mate, the knowledge about how to succeed in marriage the knowledge about how to rear children, the knowledge about how to conduct yourself among your own kin, your own near family members. You have vast knowledge, knowledge that makes you want to acquire more knowledge about current and recent history and ancient history and biblical history and archaeology. You have the very word of God. You have a way of escape if God so decrees, or you have your final witness to give, whichever, and either is a great honor. You have the way, as I say, to health and happiness and long life and successful marriages and happy, healthy babies and children. What do you have? Every possible good gift and great, wonderful thing that a great, loving, merciful God could give you. Anyone who would have so much spiritually and not want to share it is a pretty miserable person. You've got to want to share it. You've got to want to give. You've got to want to reach out and touch other human lives. So even as the Apostle Paul could look at those people in Corinth and say, Are not you my work in the Lord? Wouldn't it be wonderful if at some time you could be kind of like a Mrs. Runcorn? When she is brought up in the resurrection and she looks around this earth and realizes what a great matter a little conversation began when one day she said to my mom, Loma, do you believe that God can heal you? She is going to feel top of the world. 
You mean I, little old farmer's wife, fat, ugly, red-headed, misshapen, Mrs. Runcorn with a wart on my chin, was used to do all of that? But that's what she started, by letting her light shine. And I am a part of Mrs. Runcorn's work. <laughs>